You're listening to Spectra. On this episode, we talk about the clitoris with our guest, Mal Harrison. Mal is the director of the Center for Erotic Intelligence, which focuses on research, policy change, and education. Prior to founding the center, she wrote as the advice columnist for the Museum of Sex here in New York. So welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to have you on the show. Thanks so much. You wrote a piece in 2011 about the internal clitoris when you were the advice columnist for the Museum of Sex. Can you tell us a brief history of the clitoris? Oh boy, a history of the clitoris. Well, a very, very long time ago, um, hundreds of years ago, it actually was relevant in history. People knew about it, people revered it, respected it, knew it was the pleasure button for women. And then sometime in the 1800s, around the time of hysteria, it kind of went into oblivion. And I'm sure a lot of influences had to do with it, such as politics and the study of medicine. But we started to see it missing from anatomical textbooks. And so in 1998, Dr. Helen O'Connell, a urologist, did a study um, on cadavers, and she found this erectile tissue on the inside of women and sort of brought it to light. It ironically was the same year men started popping Viagra. And, um, and so then in 2009, two doctors in France, Dr. Odell Poisson and Pierre Folds, they uh, launched the first uh, group of studies that really looked at the internal erectile tissue when it became engorged with blood stimulated. And so they were able to sonograph uh, these images of what our internal clits look like. And so then I went and uh, became part of the study and got my own clitoris sonographed during stimulation. So that was really fun, going to bat for science. And so now the world knows that there's a lot more up than just a little button up under the hood. It's much more internal than we realized. Yeah. What was it? Um, what was it like having a sonograph image taken of your clitoris? I'm weird. I mean, I've, I've never shied away from pap smears or anything like that. It's just part of, you know, I have no issues with it. I sit there and talk to my doctor the whole time because it takes your mind off the the pain. But, I mean, a sonograph, essentially, they they put jelly on you. And um, I also masturbated with a camera wand. Wow. Um, so that was kind of weird. But <laughs> once you get into it, it's it's all right not so bad you can psych yourself out (laughs) (laughs) that's really cool um are you read that it it moves Mm -hmm. can you talk about that yeah so there's always this debate about vaginal orgasm or clitoral orgasm and I really don't like thinking of our orgasms in any type of gradation or context of one or the other um if you can have an orgasm and you enjoy your orgasms it doesn't matter you know what what type it is some women can think themselves to orgasm um some can have have them from working out so um essentially uh, over the years, Freud said, you know, a clitoral orgasm is the immature type of orgasm. And you're you're not a real mature woman until you can have the vaginal orgasm, right? And then Germaine Greer scoffed at that um, and, and said, you know, absolutely a woman derives pleasure from having something inside of her. And now that we know the internal clitoris swells, the two legs wrap around our vagina and actually hug the vagina, um, we realize that, you know, know, all orgasms um, are really from our internal 
uh, tissue swelling and becoming hard. So when a penis is, or a toy or a finger or anything is inside of our vaginas, the erect tissue of the clitoris is actually moving. Um, and so it, it moves around the same way you would jerk a penis off and it moves up and down and, you know, you move it around to get it off. It's sort of the same wow. idea with the clitoris. That's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, as far as erogenous zones, what does this mean for the G-spot? So the G-spot, first of all, is highly debated in the medical community. And again, it's one of those things that has sort of culturally been a trend or a fad that women grab onto um, and that women say, oh, I can have a G-spot orgasm or I can't find my G-spot. What's wrong with me? It's just another bit of like confusing information, I feel, for a lot of people um, who are trying to like check off every type of orgasm and every anatomical structure um, off the list. I think every woman is different. So in terms of the G-spot, some women are very sensitive there. Um, some women aren't. Um, it's really where our internal clitoris kind of connects with our urethra and the um, front anterior wall of our nether regions. So <laughs> it's different with every single human. Yeah. You pointed out that the same year, 1998, that Viagra was available for men, we were just learning about the size of the clitoris. Why has science and medicine neglected to study female anatomy? We could have babies without having orgasms. And, um, you know, when it comes to the study of men in erectile dysfunction, um, the medical community treats the, the, a man's ability to become erect and um, have an orgasm as some sacred bit of, you know, their identity and their livelihood. But they've never considered a woman's sexual wellness with the same uh, equality, which is unfortunate. So if it required orgasm for women to have children, I'm sure we would be much further along in terms of the study of it. But for the most part, we could have babies without having to have orgasms, and so it went un unstudied. Yeah. I'm sort of drawing a connection between... It's as if, like, because their female anatomy is not described in medical text, it goes... The information is disseminated, and it's like telephone, and then it's all this mystery around a woman's orgasm and pleasure. Whereas because males were... The, we know a lot about the penis and how it works. There is no confusion. Yeah. What do you think about that? I think there are a lot of elements that come into play. Um, the first one would be that, unfortunately, a lot of people out there are making buttloads of money by exploiting the fact that, you know, female orgasm and sexuality is, does um, have a lot of mystery surrounding it. Um, some people would say... Some of those people are great. I think um, orgasmic meditation is a group that um, definitely helps women in terms of giving them permission to explore their pleasure without worrying about a man. Um, but at the same time, you shouldn't have to pay thousands of dollars to become quote unquote certified or a professional stroker. I mean, sex and orgasm is one of the greatest free parts of our dignity and parts of our existence. So um, on the one hand, um, it's unfortunate that it gets exploited the way it does and it's not approached from you know, a service to humanity perspective or an educational perspective. Um, on the other hand, um, I think we're overcoming hundreds of years of sort of gendered oppression. Um, 
I recently gave a talk at Cycles and Sex and um, and made a call to action for women everywhere to stop faking their orgasms. And I also said we should have compassion for for each other, for those of us who have faked orgasms or do fake orgasms, simply because um, when the agricultural revolution happened, we became less equal. So prior to that, women provided about 80% of the family meal and nuts and berries and plants, and men brought home 20% of the meal, and it, which was meat, um, the hunt. So that was sort of the luxury. Um, and then the agricultural revolution happened, and we stopped being nomadic, and we started settling on lands and who owned the land um, and who the land was passed down to became a major factor in our <clears throat> societies. And so um, obviously who the baby's daddy was became very important because that determined who got the land and the money and the power. Um, and so that's when the real oppression started. And we're just now sort of going back to that place where we were prior to the agricultural revolution. And so, you know, fast forward to the 1800s, women couldn't vote, we couldn't own property, we couldn't have, you know, up until recently, relatively speaking, we couldn't have a bank account or a credit card, and we didn't have a lot of rights. So if we wanted a place in society, we had to do that through marriage. Um, if we wanted to own a house, we had our husband had to do that for us. So if we wanted any influence in society, we had to have have a husband who could give us that right. And one way that women can, you know, hopefully earn that right through their husbands is is providing him with great sexual pleasure and making him think he's the greatest sexual performer um, and lover, you know, in the world. And so we did. And so we faked it. And so that became somewhat a sense of duty, I think, for a lot of us. And um, and I would be willing to bet that somewhere in our DNA, we've been somewhat culturally conditioned to feel so much pleasure when our male partners have an orgasm and we don't. We're, we're excited, you know, and we're happy they found pleasure. Um, I hope that's across the board with all genders. But, you know, on the one hand, we needed to fake orgasm in order to kind of get to where we are today. Um, and on the other hand, enough is enough. It's time to stop faking it. And it's time to start owning our pleasure and saying, if you're going to come after two minutes, then how about you get me off with your mouth or your hands first? And then, <laughs> then we can have sex. <laughs> Ladies first. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on a panel discussion for future of sex, you talked about your personal experience of having undergone treatment for cancer and learning that there is a device for male arousal, but not for female arousal. Can you talk about this? Yeah, so it's um, it's actually a device that they use during surgery, and they use it to ensure that they don't cut through the main nerve that enables an erection. Um, but when it comes to hysterectomies or female surgery, A, we don't have enough studies on our nerve bundles and where they exist in, in mass. Um, we know the glands of the clitoris has a ton of nerve endings on it. Um, and I do firmly believe that all women are different. Um, some women have insane orgasms from anal sex and some don't like it at all. And I think a big part of that has to do with our various nerves. Um, but, you know, the same care and attention is not given to our nerve endings because our pleasure is pretty much sort of 
ignored. Um, it's almost as if, you know, a male being able to get an erection and function is so intertwined with this identity, but a female having pleasure has been so culturally looked down upon um, that the medical world just hasn't hasn't cared to be as concerned with our with luckily I didn't have have any surgery where that happened I I can still go go pretty hard and feel really good um (laughs) but it it was it was really disheartening to learn that that's frustrating yeah but it, it goes back to not having the data right yeah and it's it I think it's also you know when women are sort of looked at as as vessels for having children versus, and, and, you know, our sexual health and wellness is not something that's even been an issue in society really up until the past 20 years. Um, I think the stats for women who owned a vibrator in the seventies, it's like a very, very small percentage compared to now. Um, and so this idea that we're able to masturbate and be shameless about that or have our own pleasure or own our own pleasure, this is like relatively new in the public sphere of conversation. Yeah. Talking about arousal, in regards to sex education in the U.S., this research is from the Guttmacher Institute. 37 states require that information on abstinence be provided and some states require it. 28 states and the District of Columbia require the provision of information about skills for healthy sexuality, including avoiding coerced sex, healthy decision-making, and family communication. It's only 13 states that require that the education be medically accurate. Mm. Um, Pleasure isn't even talked about in Mm. sex education in, in Western society here in the U.S. What do you think is the solution? Oh, Jesus. This is pretty much why I started the Center for Erotic Intelligence. When I was at the museum, I was getting emails from literally thousands of kids. And they were drinking bleach in hopes of not getting pregnant. They were putting bug, um, like insect killer, on their genitals. One was that wrote to me because she thought that would prevent an STD. Um, And so I, I just kept getting these horrendous emails and questions. And I was thinking what on earth is wrong here, in my opinion, to not provide medically accurate um, sound information or to not provide any information at all um, is a complete tragedy and it's absolutely neglect and abuse to our children. It wasn't up until recently, and maybe the, the stat is still the same, we had the highest teen pregnancy rate of any developed country. It's, it's just, it's a nightmare. It's a horrendous nightmare. And these kids get to college and um, they sort of have Catholic schoolgirl syndrome where they're, you know, the lion out of the gate and they drink, they binge drink, and they have never been given any tools on how to deal with sexuality. And it's not just sex. I mean, I think the, the biggest issue with this is that we look at sex as this thing we do and we don't talk about it unless we're hiding it or bragging about it. Um, so hiding it, we're not talking about it, but bragging about it, we're talking about it. And those are the only two main negotiations we have around talking about sex. So to talk about it in any other terms um, that are educational is is very, it, it's hard. You know, teachers bring their own biases to the table. Parents freak out at schools and educators. Um, and so the Center for Erotic Intelligence, we're in colleges and universities And we have a curriculum that is basically sexual and reproductive health, which is what 
hopefully sex ed and what most people think of when they think of sex ed, it's, you know, pregnancy and STIs. Um, And then we have pleasure education, a big component. And then we have consent education, um, which we wouldn't need, by the way, if we had the next pillar of our curriculum, which is interpersonal slash relationship education. And under that umbrella, we have social intelligence and emotional intelligence. So if we were teaching social and emotional intelligence, um, in our beautiful, wonderful children, then they would know how to handle rejection. They would know how to handle shame. They would, well, they would hopefully know how to handle it. And they would also understand what it means to respect another. They would also understand the need for empathy. Um, and so we just, we, it's, it really boils down to respect. We, we're not, sex ed doesn't teach you anything about respect or social intelligence or how to interact with somebody when adversity strikes. Um, so that's really what we're trying to do um, because of the nightmare that is sex ed in America. Um, and, you know, it's it's such a shame because even people come to me after they've been to a sex therapist and sex therapists um, also bring their own biases to the table. So we have our own set of beliefs and ideas about what healthy sex should look like or be like. And then we try to impose that on others. Um, And I think that's not fair. I think we need to have space for all of us to express our individual sexuality in, in, the ways that we want to, so long as we're not hurting anybody um, or taking advantage of anybody. I've talked to kids about what types of sex ed they had in high school, college kids, and um, and I've heard so many awful stories, misinformation. One teacher told a student that um, there was no sense in using condoms because they have microscopic holes in them. Um, and I'm sure we've all heard the story of, of the tape. Once you have, here's a piece of tape, stick it on your arm. Now take it off. Sex is the same way. Every time you have sex, you know, your tape, your vagina loses its stickiness. And having more sex is not going to make your vagina looser and looser. That's just complete completely absurd and a myth so unfortunately because it's something that we don't talk about in an open space nonchalantly you know at the dinner table um it becomes something that has a lot of shame and stigma and and misinformation surrounding it so we're trying to fight that as best we can male masturbation is talked about a lot um, more openly and shared in movies why isn't female masturbation talked about seems like there is no space for girls and women to talk openly or learn about pleasure and masturbation. I mean, again, I think it just goes back to that, to us rising out of um, cultural oppression in terms of generation after generation. We went from not being able to own property to not being able to own our own body parts and our own orgasms and our own sexuality. So, you know, women are supposed to be these revered mothers and nurturers and caretakers and um you know we can be those things but we can also be a total freak in the sheets or completely into pleasing ourselves um and i think in general you know masturbation seems to be somewhat threatening to men initially i don't think it is now Uh, at least i hope not to the modern male i hope they're like yeah girl let's do it together and watch each other across the room (laughs) or let me help you um you know luckily all of us are changing the female and the male perspectives um and the non-binary perspectives but i definitely feel like 
you know, this idea that women are supposed to be these good little girls and small and not speak up and not cause confrontation is sort of exactly why we are taught not to talk about masturbation and shh, that's, that's secret and private. Um, I grew up with two women, my grandma and my mom, who talked about masturbating and sex at the dinner table, and my dad and grandfather loved it, obviously, and it was never a big deal in my household. I had a magnet on my fridge that was a 1950s cartoon, and a, it was a mom with a little speech balloon that said, darling, God's gift to women wasn't men, it was the shower massager. So, <laughs> so you can imagine that was my first experimental <laughs> toy. Um so it's definitely uh, it's definitely something we're overcoming, pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> I think female masturbation is definitely, for me, I was taught that it was my sense of independence, my sense of self-reliance. It was a stress relief and not something dirty or bad. Um, so I think if we could just sort of start educating girls with that, that helps them own their own bodies and that helps them develop agency. Um, you know, if your 15 year old daughter wants to know about the clitoris or sex or pleasure, get her a, a vibrator, get her a damn vibrator, let her explore her body because, you know, there's no sense of in any young girl losing her virginity to a guy and risking an STD or pregnancy if she hasn't learned how to get herself off first. That's just ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. What is clit feminism? I think clit feminism, it's so funny because people tell me like, oh, you're a pioneer of it. And I'm like, what? What's that? Mm -hmm. um, I think it's just this idea that, you know, medically, historically, our pleasure parts have been completely neglected. The clitoris is the only organ in the human body for pleasure. So maybe some male doctors got a little jealous about that. I don't know. Maybe they didn't. But, um, you know, nobody really cared about our pleasure. Um, so it, it, it just got completely neglected. And so bringing it to light and really making efforts to educate men and or just any partner of, of women um, that, you know, jackhammering and pounding doesn't always get the job done. You know, we might need a little bit more rocking motion and we need a lot more stimulation on our quits. A penis going in and out of our vaginas doesn't doesn't do it for most women. So so clip feminism is like, hey, guys, I'm going to stop lying and stop faking orgasms. And this is how you make me come. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, you answered this question. I, you, was how, you founded the Center for Erotic Intelligence. What made you want to create this institute? No. You talked about like kids emailing you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Horrific stories. I think it's also just this idea that, um, that we really need to start thinking of sex differently um, and stop thinking of it as this dirty little thing that we do and start thinking of it more as a place we go. Can you talk about eroticism and your research? So a lot of our data on human sexuality is very quantitative. Um, and unfortunately, that leads people to think um, in terms of, well, if I have sex with my partner four times a week, am I normal? Two times a week, am I normal? And so we have this normalization of human sexuality. And the only thing normal in human sexuality is variation. So a lot of the research into eroticism is qualitative. Um, we're very interested in, in the erotic mind, what turns people on, and, uh, and sort of the, the trends in that. 
I define, I, you know, a lot of people think of eroticism as something obscene or like prostitution or porn or BDSM. And it could be those things, but I tend to define eroticism itself as the um, interplay of desire and arousal with the daily challenge, challenges of living and loving. And so I think it's a big part of our evolution um, into humans because we have so much sexual mating energy. Um, unlike other animals, we don't have a period of estrus. We're ready to have sex at any point. Um, humans are permanently arousable, and you know that, that goes to food, to sex, to music, to art. Um, so eroticism definitely transcends beyond you know this narrow vision of dirty sex. Mm-hmm. Um, we're just easily stimulated. Yeah, we're easily stimulated. <laughs> and so I think what happened was all of this mating energy sort of expressed itself. We couldn't be mating all the time, um, but we were permanently arousable. It helped us develop imagination and um, the ability to look forward, to dream, to think about the person we just met um, and want to see them tomorrow. And so it, it kind of gave us a deeper sense of um, time and abstract in an abstract form. And so I think that really was a big part of making the human mind. Mm-hmm. Are you do- focused on any specific research? Because you said you're on college campuses. So we're on college campuses. We're doing quite a bit. So we do activism and policy change um, research. We're trying to sonograph a thousand clits. We just got funding to do a hundred. What? Uh, <laughs> I want to do that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, because, you know, we... I think there have been maybe 12 done in medical uh, studies that have been published, uh-huh. 12 images. Um, and, you know, you can't really see in a, like you have to be a really trained eye to see on a sonogram. The pictures in the Museum of Sex article, they're a digital recreation of the sonogram. Okay. So those aren't actually what the sonogram look like. But, you know, there's variation, no two feet are this, you know, between you and I, we're going to have a different shaped nose, different shaped eyes, different shaped feet. So we really want to kind of get a bigger, broader idea of, of sort of the variation. Um, we're, we're still fighting, you know, for people to recognize that the vulvas all vary in shape and size and appearance. Um, so here I am like, well, let's look at the inside, but, (laughs) um, but yeah, so that's a big chunk of our research. We're also, um, doing a a research project on sex with robots um, and what constitutes cheating um, as we evolve with technology. Um, It's a combined project with Bryony from Future of Sex podcast. Um, And the first um, sex doll brothel opened in Barcelona and they have plans to open in London. So everybody's talking about sex with robots, um, but we're really interested um, in finding out what people think about it. You know, would you be okay if your spouse went to a brothel and had sex with a robot you know when they have artificial intelligence and they can express themselves does that change your answer um what is the age of consent for a young boy or a young girl to go have sex with one of these robots if there's no risk of std or pregnancy so these are the the questions um that we want to want to pose and then i think uh, further research will happen as the hologram issue comes up um, 
um, and consent. Um, does this person have consent to have sex with my hologram if I'm not there and it's just my hologram? I don't know. So we're really fascinated to find out what the general public thinks, um, what the masses think. Um, and you know what has constituted cheating has changed over the years. Yeah. Um, there was a huge anti-porn, you know, the feminist movement of the 80s was super anti-porn. Um, and now that's changed. I love porn. I watch it all the time. Good porn. It's hard to find, but it's there. Mm-hmm. Um, and amateur porn. Yeah. Nice <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> they're couples. Yeah, totally. Um, and yeah, so, and makelovenotporn.tv is also wonderful. Cindy Gallup, she's great. But yeah, so strip clubs or sexting or, you know, flirting on Facebook Messenger. These are all kind of semi new new things that various people say, oh, that's cheating or that's not cheating. I'm okay with it. And at the end of the day, everybody has to figure out, you know, what works between themselves and their partners. And it's not just a one time conversation um, in long term relationships. It's an ever evolving conversation. Um, I say the same thing about the birds and the bees in today's day and age. It's no longer just a one-time talk you have with your kids. It's an ongoing discussion throughout their, their raising. So, yeah, <laughs> it's interesting. I do find myself even, I wrote a post, um, I write for a New Year's revolution. We're trying to engage people to get more political and using social media to do so. And I wrote a post about abusive relationships. And as I was doing all of my research, I've, I like occurred to me, I was like, there are so many of these things I didn't know when I was in an abusive relationship. Oh, wow. And I couldn't believe it. I was like, red flag. The main thing for me was it said, I read that the victim will usually protect their partner yeah. and like not tell anyone. And that's the, the main thing I did. I thought I could control it. I could figure it out. It was my issue. No one else's. And now that's absurd. But and the, I mean, wild. That's a big reason why we need relationship education mm-hmm. I think um I, I I think one of my inner motivations for doing what I do was watching my mother in bad relationships um my dad who's one of my best friends but um when they were married he was an alcoholic and she had this idea that love would just solve everything that if she just loved hard enough he would change that if she just did everything perfectly he would he would straighten up and if she just you know loved she i mean she's the embodiment of love she's one of my heroes but she genuinely just believed love would would fix it all and it doesn't um, a damaged person is going to take out their angst on another person and um and it's an it's really unfortunate. So I think it's important we teach men and women and everybody else and anybody, all humans, um, all all genders, all non-binary people that um, you know, what a healthy relationship um, constitutes. Like. Yeah, yeah, what it looks like. And if you are the person causing harm to your partner, how you can get help? Yeah, you know, the best thing for the victim is to leave the relationship. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I still keep in touch with that ex-boyfriend and I mean, it's now we're not like friends, but he's like, talk to me if, he, if, if things have come up and he's like, did I do that to you? And I was like, yeah. Wow. And, you know, he's like, I'm, it's hard for him to see himself. And I'm like, you just need to get help. You need to talk to a therapist and figure it out. 
Is he dating other people? Um, I think right now he's probably single, but um, last time we spoke deeply about it, I don't know how he's doing now, but um, he had just broken up with someone mm. and was talking to me about, he was just like, I don't know who to talk to, who will understand me. And he's like, can I talk to you about this? And I was like, yeah. Because I'm set, like far away from the relationship. Yeah. And, you know, I was like, I can be an ear and just encourage you to get help. You know, such a strong woman to yeah. still still talk to him and yeah. and actually try to help him. I mean, that says a lot yeah. to your character and compassion. But I think what I learned from that relationship is putting myself first, which is very hard for people to do, especially women. Mm-hmm. We are taught to please everybody else and put everybody else first, um, and almost as if that's like a characteristic of what love is, right? Um, and you really can't fully love someone else until you love yourself. I know it's so cliche, but it's absolutely true. Yeah. Um, so, and I mean, I just came through an interesting experience with my dog. Um, <laughs> and I know that's weird, but she, I had her for 11 years. She was my mm-hmm. dog and sort of carried me through cancer. And so from, I guess the time I was 24 until now I'm 35 and I mean, she went through graduate school with me. She went through failed relationships. She she was my my best friend. We spooned together, everything. And I really found that true love was intentional. And she she became sick. So for the past nine months, I cared for her um, beyond anything I could express in words. Um, I canceled all my work trips. I canceled all my vacations. I stayed with her. She had a very intense medication schedule. Um, she had been such a ride or die for me that it was the least I could do. She was given three months to live. She lived for nine. Um, and so I learned two things from that. The first was that, um, you, you need balance. So to loving yourself, I couldn't just stay and hover over her and think oh my gosh you're gonna die any second because that was really unhealthy for my mental um, state so I found leaving her actually helped me love her better Um, so even if it was you know going out to run errands or what have you just having that space from her helped me come back balanced and recalibrated to give her the care she needed and then the second thing was that true love is not some magical force that falls from the sky when we first fall in love it's not this it's not chemistry intertwining us with somebody or you know our our destined fate um that's actually limerence that's not love um limerence lasts for about 18 months if you're lucky to three years and then it's after that phase that um, that we actually start to build what true love is. And Helen Fisher has a great TED talk on the brain and love. So she explains the different parts of the brain and, and limerence and, and the romantic drive that's like an addiction when we're obsessed and infatuated. And then we sort of go to this content um, in the hippocampus. We go to this uh, content aspect of, of being in love. Um, and that's usually where people get boring and they jump from relationship to relationship and average relationships are three to four years for that reason. Um, The highest rate of divorce across 188 cultures, regardless of religion, um, socioeconomic background is between years three and year four. So it's not really the seven year itch, it's the three year itch or the four year itch. And so, so I found in those nine months that this intentionality of caring for her it actually made my love for her grow and flourish in ways that I couldn't 
put words to. It became so deep and so profound. And so what I really realized was that true love is not in the feeling, but it is in the doing. And that's that's the work that real love takes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, so these are my final two questions. What's next for you? You mentioned before you started, before we started recording, that you created a petition. Yes. Um, so we just launched it yesterday. It's it's just it's a minor detail, but these minor details make a world of difference. Um, mm-hmm. And it's petitioning the National Medical Library um, and their tool, the, the Mesh is is the shortened name for it, but it's it's basically the the medical sub subject heading uh, category. And so we're asking them to update their definition of clitoris. Their definition of clitoris says that it's a homologous to the penis, but it, the, their definition of penis doesn't say that the penis is homologous to the clitoris. Mm-hmm. So that's just messed up. Um, and it also goes on to describe the esoteric function of the penis, but it doesn't for the clitoris. So, I mean, maybe those guys over there at the library are just mad they don't have a feel-good organ. (laughs) I'm guessing it has to do more with the fact that it's a government agency and it's really outdated and they just need to, like, get the get their shit done and get, get their asses off their chairs. But, um, but yeah, so we're asking them just for the sake of equality and to, to recognize that, yeah, the clit has a function. It's to make us feel good and it's for pleasure. Like, don't deny that. So we're, we're just asking them to update the definition to reflect a, a less uh, sexist viewpoint in comparison to the penis. <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> um, and my final question to you, which I ask all my guests, is... Why is sexual pleasure important? Oh my gosh, why is it not? <laughs> well, I think I said before, it's definitely a sense of self-reliance. Um, it's it it's mentally healthy. I think there have been some studies um, where women who get, get semen in them, and I, I have an IUD, so I can actually attest to this. I feel depressed if I don't get, get it inside of me. <laughs> so I'm just like, and then if it's been a minute and I, I get cream pie, I get cum in me, I'm like, oh, I feel such relief. And so there, there are studies saying that it like relieves depression. There's this debate about emotionless sex. And I say there's no such thing. And a lot of people will say, well, I have emotionless sex all the time. And if you asked me in my 20s, I'd be like, yeah, I fucked like a man. I had tons of emotional sex, emotionless sex, rather. But at the end of the day, we still derive a sense of our ego being validated, self-validation, self-affirmation. Um, the moment we undress, we are, are having a, a moment of acknowledgement with another that we have no more shame. We are in a moment of acceptance. So self-validation and self-affirmation and power, those are all emotions. So there's no such thing as emotionless sex. Um, and I think sexual you know, pleasure is so important to our health because it gives us so much more than just physical pleasure. It gives us... Um, emotional and mental excitement and acceptance um, and it it makes us feel alive so that's probably the most important reason why (laughs) (laughs) that's wonderful thank you so much thank you yeah (laughs) thanks for having me this is wonderful awesome thank you cool thanks for listening if you like spectra follow us at spectra podcast and write us a review on itunes It really helps get more people to listen. Thanks to Mal for being a guest on our show. You can follow the Center for Erotic Intelligence at 
Erotic Intelligence, and at centerforeroticintelligence.org. You can sign her petition to redefine the clitoris in the U.S. National Medical Library and the MeSH at change.org. The link is also provided in today's episode description. Extra special thanks to our audio engineer, Matt Leibowitz, and our content editor, Annalise Jeske. Music score by Silent Retreat.